Hi, and welcome to the Filmmaker's Compass podcast. I'm Dustin, joined by Christian, and we have a fantastic guest for this episode of the show. So Christian, I'm going to throw it over to you real quick. I'm really excited about this. So on this week, we actually have a really good friend of mine, Nick Gilbert, who has unbelievable amount of experience working in the industry, and he's kind of done... A lot. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. He's done a lot. He's he's worked in the film industry in multiple places. And so, Nick, just really glad you could come on. It's great to be here. Film in general. Nick and I met a couple years ago working on a project which evolved into a film, which evolved into a pilot. No, that, that's the short film I'm thinking of, right? Yeah. Since that time, we've worked on a couple other projects together. But I think the basis of our connection really is the fact that we are both, well, all three of us are Midwesterners yes, here. Yes, yeah. from Indiana. I'm from Indiana, and you're from that shitty state of Michigan. Ooh. <laughs> low, low, right off the bat. Dang. No, I got, I got no problems with Michigan. You guys have a better film industry than we... Well, if Michigan's the hand, <laughs> Indiana is the armpit. Oh, Dude, wow. <laughs> this is going to go on all this is, episode, I think. Okay. All right, all right. I'll just drop it now before we start talking about football. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about what was the film season like in Michigan? How did you kind of get into it? I guess the bigger question would be, how did that prep you for film industry here in LA? Yeah, good question. The industry in Michigan has changed over the years. If we set the dial on the time machine to way, way, way back, Michigan was actually the third largest production community in the United States behind Los Angeles and New York. Yeah. But this is on the way, way back machine. And it was all from the auto industry. So industrials and ad-based stuff. Over the last few decades, that's not been the case. But we have had some peaks and valleys of production in Michigan. Because of the auto industry, there's always been work there. You know, be yeah. it ad stuff, yeah. which is what I did a lot early on in my career. But because of that, there's also been sort of this residual film community of people that live there, have access to the gear, both uh, Grip and Electric and camera and the crews. But there's always been kind of an independent community yeah. of people yeah. doing things there. And it's also a small community. Very hard to break into, but once you're in, you're in. Yeah. Right? And so that was a really good thing where people would help each other out a lot. And then there's also always been the music aspects to Detroit. In my career, certainly I went through a phase where I did all kinds of music videos and music-based documentaries. Cool. A lot of it based on the Motown stuff. But then, of course, too, in the early 2000s and late 90s, it was a lot of Eminem-based stuff. You know, a lot of rap videos and stuff like that. So yeah, so that's kind of how I got into it. And I've worked in a number of different capacities in the industry over the years, starting off as a production assistant and then basically doing whatever I could to meet people and uh, start working in different capacities, always knowing that I wanted to be a, a writer-director. Out of high school, I went to broadcasting school, a year-long program, and I got an associate's degree after that. Actually, in high school, I decided that, like, you know what? Uh, it's time to go out there. I had this thing about theoretical versus practical application in yeah. my life. And I was yeah. like, you know, it's time to go out there and do something. And then I chickened out. And I was like, oh, no, okay, I have to have some <laughs> education. <laughs> so that's when I decided to go to broadcasting school. thing I never would have got my first job in the industry had I not graduated. I was also working at a nightclub that did lots of, well, it was a disco, but it also did some <laughs> rock and roll shows, too. And I was heavily involved in, like, promoting the bands and, and hanging the lights and a lot of the Okay, so you got some of that g and &E background yeah you weren't even working in film technology. that's right yeah that's cool yeah and that yeah it really helped me kind of learn how to wrap cable and focus lights and learn about the different parts of lights and even though it was applied to stages you know with a live rock and roll or a dj it still was somewhat applicable to the stuff that i would do later on lighting human beings yeah actors. no no for sure that's cool and i never would have got that first job in the business the guy that owned the nightclub i was working at also owned a small production company 
called really? BCI, and they did. Hope he's not listening to this, but horrible corporate productions <laughs> where we would shoot, you know, medical machines and things <laughs> like this, and it was not super creative work. But I knew that he owned it, and that was the only connection to the film business that I had at all. Um, was knowing some guy that owned this kind of I don't want to call it low end, but like lower budget style oh, video production. It doesn't sound like you get a lot of. Uh creativity <laughs> no no it was not, it, they did not do creative work it was it was low budget and it was training videos and corporate things and stuff like that and I worked there after graduating he finally I tried for a year to get him to hire me and he would not hire me until I had graduated from from the school I was going to so I graduated he hired me on as a production assistant I was think I was making like $50 a day this is also <laughs> a long time ago and I was still working at the disco because it wasn't a full-time thing after working there for about three months he decided to close the business and so when I was, wow. and I was like, of course, okay, right? But at yeah, least you yeah. got your experience. And I got my experience. It was a, a blessing in disguise because that's also what allowed me to start working more or on hiring things in the business. Not only was I out of job at that point, but everybody else that I worked with were out of jobs as well. And they went back to freelancing. One of them got a job on a film called Polish Wedding. Lena Olin, Gabriel Byrne. Who else was in that? She's the most famous actress on it. Uh, she is the star of Should I uh, Google it? Showtime film or, or TV show. Uh, it's a political thriller. All right, now, it's a, now it's a trivia quiz. Hang on, here we go. Polish I'm not going. I've never even heard of the movie. So yeah, well, whatever. I mean, it was it was it was a real Hollywood production. Claire Danes. Claire Danes. Claire Danes. Yeah. Okay. Claire Danes. All right. There yeah. we go. Yeah. It's early in the morning, everybody. It's like five thirty here in Los Angeles. Really, the first thing that I ever did as a production assistant. How do you make the jump from PA to actually someone who's actually making real money and actually getting to do something? Was well, it just sort of a stick around, put in the time, and look for? Yeah, I mean, there's there's no easy answer on how to do it, or else everybody would be doing it. I mean, you really have to forge your own path and make it happen for yourself. And your I think self. that's part of the challenge. That's part of the challenge, right? There's no no, road no one's lines. gonna do it for you. You have to do it yourself. You have to make your own path. But you're absolutely right in that it takes time, it takes busting your ass, mm -hmm. and a lot of it's luck too. I mean, it is part of putting yourself, creating a situation where you're in the right place at the right time and ready to take the opportunities when they present themselves, right? So I started PAing after that. I talked to everybody that was from Michigan that I, that I knew. So there were a lot of people that came in from out of town on that job. Yeah. And I wasn't at a point in my career to take advantage of any of those things because I wasn't willing to move to LA at that time. Yeah. And that's something that we could talk about, too, is like, when do you move to L.A.? And Did you LA? always want to come to L.A.? Well, or for was me, that like an it, opportunity presented itself? It, it was never a question of, will I live in L.A.? It was always a question of when. Okay, yeah. so you did always want to go. I'm not, well, you keep saying want. I'm not saying want. Okay, okay. <laughs> it's, it's, more of an, it's more of a necessity, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. for a long time, I wanted to be, uh, I don't know, the John Waters of Michigan, right? You know, yeah. like a lot of people, yeah. you're resistant to it. But you're just making it harder for yourself unless you get really lucky. Because all the deals are made here. Yeah. You know, and, there, and I guess overall, one of the things to talk about is, do you want to be a filmmaker or do you want to work in film production? I and think that's a very good They're two point. different things. Although they, they can, you can do both and you can do one and then do the other. But you really need to find out what you, what you honestly want to do. And remember, this is a long time ago. The bar to entry now is much, much less than it's ever been any time ever. You could shoot on like beta SP, right? And then be <laughs> maybe competitive in film festivals. But if you couldn't afford film and you couldn't afford, you know, the raw stock and you couldn't afford the processing and you couldn't afford 
the actual physical cameras. Yeah. Um, it was a lot harder to do on your own. Yeah. Uh, and one of the ways <laughs> to get access to that stuff back in the old days was working on stuff and working with people, being able to beg, borrow, and steal them. Right. But they're not going to give it to just anybody. And sure. if you go out and you work on people's spec stuff and you bust their ass and they own some of that or they have a connection to the lab or whatever, you know, they would help you out. So it comes back to networking. And it comes back to networking, yeah. yeah. And now, I mean, you could go shoot something on your iPhone and you could probably jump all those steps to a certain extent. Yeah. Right. But that's probably not going to get you a job working as a filmmaker. Right. But, it, you know, the only way to be a filmmaker is to make a film, right? It's still Catch-22. Yeah. <laughs> and that's always, I think, everyone's biggest problem, right? So did you did you just load up a car and come out to L.A.? Or did you have something lined up when you made the jump? Um, well, we're skipping a, a Yeah, I, I don't even yeah. think we should go there. <laughs> okay. One of the things I want to talk to you about, and, and obviously, how do you join a union? I think that's something that a lot of people want to know. Right. How do you find the right union? What advice do you have? Because I assume there's a lot of filmmakers out there who are kind of, I like this, but I like this, but I like this. And one of the things that you've done is, as you said, you did the G&E stuff before you even started, right? Yeah. You worked as a PA. I know you worked art department. I know you worked camera department. You've seen production yeah. from across the board, which I think has to make you, whatever you're doing, more valuable because... I think so. And I've, I've seen two, at least two different types of directors out there. They're the people who have come up through the legs in working in film production. And there's the people who, for however, made a film and did it on their own. To me, I think that the people who came up working uh, in different crew positions have a little bit better advantage because they really understand what they're asking everybody else to do. Yeah. Now, if you're working on, on a very high end, there's lots of people that never worked a crew that are doing great things. I mean, Spielberg was never a crew person. There's, there's all kinds of people who are making great films who never did it. But also, they figured out a way to have all the resources that they need to do whatever they want that doesn't happen very often so yeah. i'm not talking about these people who were prepared for the luck when it struck i'm talking about the majority of people who end up working as filmmakers if you can understand what you're asking people to do from both a practical and a theoretical standpoint you're going to be much better off you know volunteer and work on as many things as you can you know work in as many different positions as you can which is one of the things that i did you know i've also never been willing to be a, a starving artist you know, so I've, I've always had a job and, yeah. and it's always been in the, in the film business, but I've done some things that aren't my dream. I never wanted to be really a gaffer and I never wanted to be an electrician. I never really wanted to be a grip, but those were things that I could transition into after being a production assistant. Yeah. And so there's, depending on what market there is, and even in, even in LA, there's lots of union work, but there's lots of non-union work as well. And you can certainly make a good, decent living uh, as a non-union crew member. Yeah, now there's no question about that. And if you invest your money right, and you do health insurance right, and you know you save money right, you know there's certain advantages to, to doing it that way as well. That said, all the biggest jobs are union jobs. Yeah. So if you want to work at a certain level, getting into the union is probably something that you're going to have to do, whether you want to or not. Yeah. So getting into the union depends on what union you're getting into and what jurisdiction you're working in. IOC obviously is the biggest union, and that covers just about everything aside from. Producers, which is something we could talk about, uh, DGA, uh, Camera Guild, and SAG, and actors. Basically, everything else is covered under IATSE. The way IATSE breaks it up is with different locals. In Michigan, and in some smaller markets, 
uh, there's usually one union that will cover a number of the different crafts. Gotcha. In big markets like New York and Los Angeles, each of the crafts have their own different union. And so getting into a union in a smaller market is a good thing to do because you can work, you could work as, as a grip and as an electrician, or you could theoretically, if you get people that are going to hire you and you can prove your, your skills and your worth, you know, you could work in the sound department uh, for a couple of days and then you go and work in the electric department gotcha. for a couple of days yeah. in, in the same week. But then when you expand out to bigger markets, when you do make that move to come to L.A., you're not going to do that. You're going to have to figure out which specific union you want to do. And because you're in, say, Local 38 in Michigan, doesn't mean that you're going to get into 728 in L.A., mm-hmm. but it's certainly going to help you a lot. You know, if you can say, look, I've been working for five years with Local 38. I just moved out here. Here's my resume. But that said, that's not how I did it. So I am in Local 38 in Michigan as well. But I also joined the Camera Guild there. Camera Guild, just like DGA and SAG, is a national local. So I didn't have to do much in order to be able to work in Los Angeles as well as in Michigan. Gotcha. There are some things you have to do. You have to declare what your production city is. It's either Los Angeles or New York. You have to change your, your residency if you live there for X amount of time. And it all has to do with being able to work as a local in other jurisdictions. But regardless, they can always put you up as a distant hire if the production company is willing to pay for it. Unless yeah. you're kind of a superstar, they're... They're not going to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so don't get your hopes up. Is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But but it does happen. I mean, you know, DPs travel all over the country and work as distant hires, and production just pays for it. And yeah, has them and everything. But most people, when they're starting out, they want to go to production cities, Los Angeles, and there's lots of work in Atlanta. You know, you don't want to change your change to the eastern region, although you can every I think it's two years or something. You don't want to keep changing it back and forth when you're jumping back to city because you have to wait. So you know, all of yeah. Uh, and the production isn't going to hire you so as a distant hire. So you want to try to do like, wait a minute, I can crash with my friends in Atlanta. Hire me as a local. Hire me as a local. Right. <laughs> they're probably not going to you know, do that because it's sort of breaking the, the union rules by not changing your jurisdiction. So yeah, don't do it. <laughs> so in other words, while you could, you shouldn't. Right, good advice. Well, yeah, or they're probably going to catch you. I mean, they're going to know. But yeah, and so how you get into the union is, is different between... Be, depending on what union you're in and what jurisdiction you're working in. So I got into Local 38 originally because they actually did a, a, an open hiring. The the union at some point, and they do this every few years, realized that there's an awful lot of non-union production going on. There was some you know, non-union people, including myself. So I was working primarily at this time as, as a group. So in Detroit, there wasn't a separation between grips and electricians. Okay. You, you would do it both. And it would be smaller jobs, so it would be a grip and electric truck. Whereas in L.A., it's two different trucks. It's two different unions. Yeah. Grip and electric okay. are completely separate. But so in Michigan, I was working as a grip electrician on these low-budget, non-union things. And then I was still doing some PA stuff on bigger union commercials. Yeah. And they needed extra help in the art department because at that time, there weren't actually enough union people in the art department to crew it all up. And I didn't have any health insurance or anything at this time. And it was an opportunity for me to work on bigger stuff. It was an opportunity for me to meet people that were working in the union. On bigger on stuff. Bigger stuff. <laughs> yeah. And I knew that and if I was getting this job. Yeah, there was, <laughs> there was a path to getting into the union. And so I started doing, and I was good at it. You know, I mean, I do have an art background and, and I just, in a very good design sense. Um, after a couple of years of sort of doing the swing kind of stuff, the union actually had an open 
initiative to bring more people into the now, union. Is this something that, that's commonly done? And is it kind I, of it, like, it happens. Uh, we I, need more people? Because this is I, I don't know. I've heard of. Yeah, so. it's, it's, it's happened. This is not the first time that it's ever happened. Um, and it's happened in other um, localities as well. Is it more of a small market? It's, pro- it's probably more of a small market thing. I, I don't. I can't see that, and I don't know of it ever happening in because I've never heard of it. Or in Los Angeles, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, so it's a smaller market. So in some thing. ways, that's an advantage to staying and working in your local film. Yeah, I mean, there's there's different. I don't want to say that there's more opportunities in smaller markets, but there's different opportunities, and it might be easier to get into the union in smaller markets than it is in, in LA. I don't. I don't really know. No, that's understandable. Okay. It's possible. And then a lot of unions as well have apprenticeships that you can get into and go through their apprenticeship programs. And then the classic way, of course, is to be working on a show that the union flipped. Also, you know, you don't have to be in a union to work on union jobs. A lot of uh, states are right-to-work states where they can't stop you from working on a job if you're not in a union. Yeah. And then other times, they just need people. So I was actually doing some work with a school recently. The job that we were given is to go to New Mexico, which is kind of an emerging market. And the way that they work there is they have what's called an overflow list. So it's a bunch of people who aren't in the union but would like to be in the union. And then once all the union people are called um, for a job, then they move on to the people on the overflow list. Okay, that makes sense. Um, And so what we were hired to do was to do some, create some training for these people, actually learn how to work in these specialized fields so that when they do get the call, they're ready. Apparently, there's no right way to join the union. Right. I guess there's no wrong way by that same... Uh, Another thing I wanted to pick your brain on. Obviously, you do have your MFA. Yeah. Just real quick, what was the decision to go get an MFA? What was the experience like, and how do you think that has helped you in your career? So right out of high school, I did a year program and got got an associate's degree, and then started working in the business. I always I, I love education. You know, I I really believe in it, but I also believe in working. <laughs> and so after a few years, I wasn't really in a position to stop and throw everything yeah. out, which yeah. is also one of the reasons why I didn't move to LA at that time because I put in my year or so as a production assistant and I knew that at that point, if I moved to LA, I would be starting over again. And in retrospect, I'm not sure that was the right decision. Really? You know, part of me is like, maybe I should have moved to LA earlier, okay. but, but we can talk about that as we, as we go through. Okay. But I knew that I wanted to learn more. I heard that I could transfer all of my credits from the Spex Howard School of Broadcast Arts which is the <laughs> school that I went to. Um, and I say it like that because it was half for radio and then half for television oh, okay. production, right? Okay. And so for half the program, the radio people that were going to become radio DJs were together with us. <laughs> and and it's, I, I can't call it film school. I call it broadcasting school because it was really geared towards learning how to work at a television station and learning how to do like local news and things like that. Yeah, but, okay. but it was worth it because it got me that first job, right? Yeah. And I did learn a few things here and there. But I also learned that I could transfer those credits to a specific program and get my bachelor's degree. And then the rest of it, um, I could do a prior learning experience petition, and that cut out a lot of it. And the rest of it, I could do online. So my bachelor's, I didn't go to, I didn't do any classroom work. Really? Yeah. But I also had, um, when I was in high school, I took some college classes. I went to a pretty progressive school, and I was also able to transfer some college okay. credit and, and things yeah. like that. It was good, but I never stopped working when I got my bachelor's. And the same thing happens with my, happened with my uh, my master's. I decided to go back to get my master's after I shot my first uh, independent film as a, as a producer and as a director of photography. Okay. And I don't want to say that I didn't get along with the director. I did, and we still do things, to do projects together now. Yeah. But I really realized that, and I always knew that I wanted to write and direct. But it was after this experience that I was like, okay, it's time to kick it into, into high gear. The director of photography is always in service, both, of course, to the story, but also to the director. 
Right? Yeah. The director is the ultimate creative um, decision maker on a feature film. And that's what I wanted to do, you know, and I wasn't satisfied. And I knew after having shot my first film that I wasn't going to be satisfied uh, until, you were... until I was in that position. Yeah. So I decided, and, and again, I wasn't willing to stop working. So I had taken a number of made media workshops in Rockport, Maine, and had really wonderful and experiences. And that's where you got your MFA? And that's also where I ended up getting my MFA, yeah. Okay. So they, they have a, a program that was just starting out. And they, so they have two parts to it. There's made media workshops and then made media college. And the Maine Media College has a low residency <clears throat> MFA program. I knew from taking workshops there, I knew the environment, and I knew some of the people that were starting and running the program. And it was a big risk, but I'm glad I did it, and I couldn't say uh, enough nice things about the program. How long did it take? Well, so now you have to do it in three years. Oh. Then you had to do it in five years, and I took six. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm just blown away by the decision to be like, okay, I'm going to go to Maine. Yeah. Like, that's not kind well, of what well, yeah. I think so, anyone really thinks. Yeah. Well, it depends on what you, what you want to do. So, I, you know, at the, at the master's level, you're not learning about how to push a dolly. You're not learning how to focus a camera. <laughs> and in fact, I went there and applied as a writer-director. What I ended up studying was just screen screenwriting. And I don't okay. know how well a low-residency program could work for directing or for cinematography or for anything that really requires more hands-on. But it seems like it makes sense for but, for screenwriting, yeah. it's 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 a, you know they split the year into semesters, and you're paired with a mentor, and you work with your mentor on whatever your projects are going to be for that semester, and then you go um, twice a year to pitch what you've been working on, and then it's publicly critiqued by the MFA, by your mentor, by the MFA committee, and by the other students. Really great. I can definitely see how it wouldn't work yeah. for some people yeah. who you know need something that's more structured, right, yeah. or, or who are studying other aspects of, of filmmaking. But a low residency program in, in screenwriting is, is fantastic. So, just about the project that you finally submitted for your MFA, have well, you ever? Well, a lot of them, but yeah. Okay, okay. Have you ever gone? Have you gone on to make any of these and, and actually shoot them as? Oh, as sure. Projects? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so uh, that, I mean, in Nailed, that which I just really well. which I which I just finished up this yeah. year, was actually written as part of the MFA program. No way. Um, I mean, it's I, I rewrote it several times afterwards. <laughs> uh, the shooting gallery was written as a. It's actually that was really? that was directly inspired by no uh, by events way. In there. Um, no, I don't way. want to give away too much of the plot, and it's loosely based on it. That's but it, fantastic. But it was. I heard a story about a workshop teacher who would have a photography class and would bring students out to the woods, and everyone would get naked and take pictures of each other, and it was supposedly what? this <laughs> like big okay. cathartic experience. And it's interesting because all the students absolutely love it, and I was going, "Whoa, this yeah, is like real. This is some time times up on of, this." Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. A little... I mean, this is really pushing pushing the line here. So. I, I think you should have told Brie Larson. I think she yeah. really up <laughs> <an> arms. <laughs> that's pretty messed up, dude. Yeah, but you know, I mean, the students that I met seemed to be okay with it. So interesting. And by the way, the shooting gallery is another project Nick and I worked on. And it's oh, actually yeah, yeah. fantastic. Yeah, great. Thanks. And so uh, we'll have to make sure you drop a... Yeah, is there a place yeah, to check drop that Drop a link to it. Yeah, yeah. You can go to my, my website, distortionfield.tv, and it's up there. Awesome. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Check it out. It's a good film. Yeah, we'll be sure to share a link with you guys as well. I mean, honestly, like, I kind of lost my train of thought. I'm just thinking about a bunch of naked people running out of the woods taking <laughs> pictures. And that's kind of really weirds me out for school because... <laughs> anyway, beyond that. Well, I have to say, too, this is not part of the academic thing. It's 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 a workshop. Okay. There's a distinction. <laughs> There's a distinction, yeah. You're eventually like, okay, I've worked on a ton of Kid Rock videos and Eminem yeah. videos and shot everything I possibly could for Chevy. Yeah. And every independent <laughs> film coming through Michigan That's or right. feature project, I'm on it. I gotta, I gotta move. Well, there's, there's, keep in mind that for me, it was always uh, never a question of if, but when. Yeah. And there's never the perfect time to do it. 
So you just gotta, you know, get your ducks in a row and figure out for you when the best time to do it is. For me, one of the biggest, aside from some personal things that were going on in my life, um, one of the biggest decisions was that in Michigan for about six years, we had the best film incentives in the country. Yeah. And so oh, we yeah. went from doing, you know, the stuff that we've been talking about and occasionally a big, a big movie would come in. You know, like I worked on 8 Mile, I worked on Out of Sight and some other big stuff that would, would come in yeah. here and there. Yeah. Um, but we went from, as soon as the incentives came in, it was one big movie after one big movie after one big movie after one big movie for, for six years. Jeez. And then um, abruptly, there was a change in government. The first thing they did was repeal the, the incentives, right? And so, you know, say, say what you want about tax incentives. I mean, I, I look at it both ways as, a, as, a, as an individual who is personally affected by it in a very positive way and then in a very negative way. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. And I also believe that, like, even if you don't believe in the incentives, once you get them there, you have to let them exist long enough in order for the industry to grow to a point where it's sustainable. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Right. To yeah. let it just go for six years and then abruptly pull the plug, it's just a, it's a stupid idea. Right. I mean, yeah. just the, yeah. the, at that point, then you're just throwing away all that money for six years. Yeah. Um, because it's not long enough for the industry to get a foothold in order to be sustainable without the incentives. Yeah. Right. What you need to do is let it go a little bit longer and then slowly start repealing. Like phase it, once, out. phase it out. Yeah. Once it's sustainable on its own. But anyway, aside from that, that was one of the big influencing factors in the timing when I decided to move to L.A. Because I didn't really want to go back to working on. Well, I didn't really want to be working as a crew person at that point in my yeah. life anymore at all. I mean, I, I'm still working as a crew person, but um, of course I don't want to be. You know, I want to get to the point where I'm just working on my own. <laughs> no, project. but I think probably the idea of really stepping down the quality and the ambition of the projects that you were involved with probably was like, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yep, there's true. a time to do it. It's now. <laughs> it is now. And then the other part of it is that there were so many people from Los Angeles coming in to work on jobs and I tried to keep those connections up as long as I could, but I knew that they weren't going to last forever. But who's this guy calling me that I worked on a job in Michigan 10 years ago? Yeah. Right. So it was also figuring out what the best point to jump on the connections that I had. Yeah. Right. And, and is so, this, I mean, just for a time reference, like this is before like social media and like. No, I mean, there was Facebook, but there was, okay. Inst- there was Facebook, but not Instagram. So whatever year that is. Gotcha. Right? Okay. That was still the dark ages, Nick. Right? Yeah, I know. Because right? I know that helps a little yeah. bit. Like, you know. Like some people were tweeting, but I, nobody was like Snapchatting because that didn't exist. Okay. Yeah. Just curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, it's really, it's like. No. In that situation, it's not going to be applicable. I think, I think so that's a valid question what. too, though. I think a lot of people assume that just because you have a contact in the industry, that that's kind of indefinite, but there's definitely, I mean, regardless of the, of the, the accessibility, right. There's definitely, you know, those, those windows sunset. They do. People change their job. They move their city. They say, screw it. I'm going to become a mechanic or whatever. Well, well, it's also, it's like one thing that happens in the business is that you, you work up a team with the people that you work with. And if your team is working really well, you want to keep working with the same people as long as they're the best people for that specific job over and over again because you develop a shorthand and you develop a level of trust and it's hard to start working with different people from both sides right because you have to build that up and you have to Mm -hmm. build up that trust and you have to build up that um that way of working right because every crew works in a little bit different way every job is a little bit different and whatever you can do as a shorthand is is good right so people really don't want to hire people that they don't know 
But when they go to a smaller market, say you're in LA and you go to Michigan to do a movie, um, there's usually parts of the incentives or whatever is bringing you there, or maybe it's just simply financial that they are not bringing every single crew person to a, to a smaller market. Yeah. They end up having to hire some local people. So it's a great way to get to know people from LA and from bigger markets yeah. and mm-hmm. yeah. show them that you can do it because you guys are, are doing it together, right? Yeah. But they're yeah. not going to remember you. They might remember you 10 years later, uh, but but they're not going to remember how well you worked or, or they're going to go, oh, wait a minute, why am I going to so hire So you really got to jump on that. You got to jump on them, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, there's, a, there's a certain amount of time that you have. Another thing that really helped me is I was working on uh, Oz the Great and Powerful, which is a huge, you know, almost a, you know, it was, I think, like eight-month shoot. Yeah. Uh, and then we had almost six or eight weeks, I don't really remember, of reshoots back oh, wow. in Los Angeles. Dang. And so um, I was asked to come out and work on the reshoots. And it was great because then I'm in L.A. and I'm showing people that, hey, look, I'm here. It's not I'm going to move to L.A. No, you're here. here. I'm here. You're I'm doing, doing these it at the same level yeah. as yeah. before. Yeah. yeah. So here I am. What's nice, guys? <laughs> yeah. That kind of a thing. And, and also, even though the Camera Guild is a national local in LA, there are specific things that you have to do in order to be able to work here. There's an industry experience roster, which you have to get on. Um, there's safety pass classes that you have to do. And so even though you know, you're in the camera guild, there still are some barriers to entry to working in Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, but if you've just been working on a whole bunch of really big movies in Michigan, you, know, you qualify for the hours and everything in order okay. to get on the industry experience roster. And then you can you know, take the safety pass classes and that kind of stuff. Gotcha. So you said you came out here for reshoots, and then you went back? Well, I knew that that I was... Yeah, so I did go back, and I went back and worked on a pilot. No, that's not exactly how it worked. So I knew that I was moving here. So I came out, and I stayed, but then I had a family at that point, and I went back and then moved them out here. So I actually drove oh, across the gosh, country yeah. twice in like a two-month period. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that was a lot of fun. What a journey. Then I ended up going... I thought that when I first moved that I'd be going back and forth, doing jobs in Michigan and jobs here. Yeah. But actually, I ended up going back and doing one pilot and then never doing another job in Michigan, <laughs> which was, I mean, I'm very grateful for that, but I don't suspect that it's going to happen like that for a lot of people. I think, yeah. you know, when you're starting out, you're probably going to go you gotta take what back you can and get forth. Where you can get it. Crazy. And then since you've been in LA, you know, what was the path like here? You know, when you were first starting out, obviously you had your footprint in the, the guild. Yeah. Were you able to find work right away? So I really, I let everybody know that I was here that I was willing to take whatever jobs in the camera department I could get. So really, I should also say too that when I really decided to start concentrating on being a writer-director, I decided to stop shooting things as well. One, because I just wanted to concentrate on what I really wanted to do. And two, because being a DP takes an awful lot of work beyond time spent on set. Okay. Yeah. So you're, you're always working on your reel. You're always working on making connections and getting out there. And I realized pretty early on that that is time that I need to be spending right and working on my own projects. Okay. But once again, I've never been willing to be a, a starving artist. And I've never, you know, after a certain point of, of working as an adult, you can't just stop working and not pay <laughs> your mortgage. You know? Yeah. So I decided to basically become a DIT at that point. You know, I've always been very technically inclined as the new position was coming out as we transferred transition from film to digital it was something that I just kind of, kind of gravitated towards and something that I can make a decent living at and basically kind of show up and do my job and go home and 
and write and work on my own. So for, for everyone who has no idea what a DIT is. Well, you should know what a DIT is before you decide to move to LA, first of all. <laughs> so, <laughs> Valid so if, you, point. if you don't know what a DIT is, don't move to LA yet. Um, DIT stands for Digital Imaging Technician. And the term is a little bit antiquated because it kind of comes from the analog world back when there were videotape operators and camera shaders and, and things yeah. like this. But it's sort of been the term of the position that's transferred into the digital age. And basically the DIT is responsible for a number of things depending on the size of the job. It could be split between a DIT and a digital loader, or it could be one person that does that does all of it. But in a nutshell, you know, you're really responsible for helping the DP maintain the exposure you know, with, you know, waveforms, vector scopes for color, having calibrated monitors on set so that everybody knows uh, what, what you're actually looking yeah. at in a, in a proper way. You know, we're usually shooting at this point logarithmic color profiles. So if you're natively looking at that, it all looks washed out, but nobody wants to look at a washed out image, especially, you know, producers and people that don't technically understand what the image is. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of what the DIT does is, is called live grading. And so we'll take that logarithmic color profile and turn it into a Rec 709 or a Rec 2020 color space. So we're adding a little bit of contrast to yeah. it and we're adding a little bit of saturation and maybe doing some live color adjustments. So when all the non-technical people walk on set, they it looks good. It doesn't look <laughs> like crap. Yeah, that's basically it. Boom. But what you know, the DST is on some jobs also responsible for um, creating lookup tables or which is basically that color information that then gets shot to post. So then the editor is on... Is yeah. on board, right? And you're yeah. making dailies and the color yeah. matches on that. Also downloading and, and QCing the files if you don't have a loader to do that. Well, so I guess we we're talking about how easy it is it to get work when you come to... You know, I was willing to take jobs as a loader when I was just coming back, which is, you know, really a, a step back in my career. And it's hard sometimes when you, you're working in a position that's way below your capacity and ability. Yeah. You just kind of got to just suck it because, you know, uh, you technically you're working You're like, for them. I'm a lot more experienced I'm than you. I'm a lot more experienced and frankly, I'm better yeah, than yeah, you know, yeah. looking at what you're doing. That's got to be hard. But you made the decision. You're like, okay, I got to pay the bills. Right. Got to pay the bills. And, and it's doing time to develop. That's right. Yeah. And so, so, you know, take the pain now for the payoff later. Yeah. yeah. And so that's one of the things that's, that's how I did it. But you guys are going to have to figure out also like, what are you, how are you going to do it? You know, what sacrifices are you willing to make in order to make it out here? Knowing that you're looking at the bigger picture and it may hurt now, but in the long run, well, pay off. And I think this is a good time to go back to the point that you brought up. Do you want to work on films or do you want to work? Or do you want to be a filmmaker? In, yeah. Right. Films? yeah. There's, there's a difference, but I assume what you're saying is if you want to be a filmmaker, there is advantage to being here, right? Yeah. Because kind of the, the production apparatus is here. Well, I, I look at it this way. All the deals are still made here. Yeah. Right? So it doesn't matter how many people are going to New Orleans or how many people are going to Atlanta or how many people are going to Vancouver to work on jobs. All the decisions are still being made here. So yeah. if you're pitching stuff, you're not doing it in Atlanta. You're not doing it in New Orleans. You're, you're pitching in LA and maybe in New York a little bit. Right now, I mean, you can pitch stuff on, on Skype, but if you get, you know, even do beyond that initial Skype and you can just get a general meeting, you know, you got to come out here for the general meeting and they're not going to fly you out for a general meeting. No. Right. I mean, so it's all on your buck. The advantages are tenfold, you know, the being here, if you're at a point where you're actively pitching and, and trying to make deals and trying to get things developed, 
if you just want to work as a crew person, I don't know anymore that being in LA matters that. Yeah. You know, there's regional It production. seems like there's better work and, you yeah, know, I mean, there cost might be of more, living's less expensive. Yes, definitely cost less to live in Atlanta. There might be more work in features there, probably not in television, but, but maybe in features. But if you really want to make stuff, you know, to a certain point, you got to be here. Even if you make your first feature in, in Michigan or someplace, does really great on the festivals, you still got to, got to get to LA to pitch your next project. Makes sense. You know exactly what you want to do. And yeah. then you can decide when to make that jump and if it's appropriate. Is yeah, that, is that what I'm getting from you? Yeah, okay. I'd say that. Okay. Yeah, sure. Okay. This may be a little a little sidestep here, but I would be interested in hearing your thoughts on taking a film through a festival run. The benefits of that, well, and, I, and is there still a benefit to that? I think it, that's it, the more well, I go back and question. forth with it. And for a while, I was teaching more than I am. I still teach workshops a little bit, but that's a question that would come up with my students all the time. They were essentially three levels of distribution, types of distribution, right? You got theatrical, you've got you know, cable broadcast, and then you've got festivals, mm-hmm. right? And festivals were a really legitimate way to get your stuff to an audience. Now, of course, we have the internet, and that's <laughs> all thrown out, yeah. right? So I am, we, we've talked about Nailed a little bit, and I did come up with a festival strategy specifically for that film, but I don't know that that is the same strategy that I would work for other films. Nailed is meant to be a festival film. Okay. It's short, it's upbeat, it's very programmable festival circuit with this one. Shooting gallery which is a longer film, it's like 15 minutes and some frames, is a much more difficult film to program in festivals. And so I sent it out, because if you guys don't know, festivals would much rather program... The three-minute film. (laughs) Three-minute or five-minute films is where you can program a bunch of them than one longer in the same time lot. If you don't have stars, film film festival has a star in it. Well, from a programming standpoint, that makes sense because the audience, to a certain extent, is going to come to see the stars just like they would anywhere else. So, you know, think about your, your strategies when you're getting into this. We sent Shooting Gallery to a number of festivals. It didn't really have very much success on the festival circuit, and then so I just put it out there online. And I think that's completely a valid thing to do. Figure out what the best audience is for your film, and hey, you know, if you want to put it out there online, go for it. Exciting. Yeah. And, and there's there's a lot to be said for festivals aside from prestige of getting some palm fronds on your poster. Good festivals have two things that are really good about them. One is the opportunity to network, and, and the other is like the workshop. So if you if you're thinking about what festivals you want to get into, definitely look for ones that are more than just a festival where they screen their films, but they're also kind of a market. People can come and actually buy your film. They're in a position to do that, yeah. or you're going to get something out of being a filmmaker who has a film in the festival, like with the the workshops that they have that you get into for free because you're in the festival, you know, or the networking parties where you could meet people who are actually in distribution, yeah, you know, or in development that might actually help you. That's, that's good, actually, and I think yeah, that's really good. Yeah. And that's the stuff I don't think a lot of people think of. Whichever one close I to my house, house yeah. or uh, that, that's right. Know, yeah, 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 yeah. Five dollars or yeah, yeah. Yeah, so really think about it. I mean, what is the festival actually offering you? Filmmaker Magazine every year does an article called 50 Film Festivals Worth the Submission Fee, which is worth looking at, and they update it every year. Good tip. And nice plug, by the way. (laughs) Filmmaker Magazine. (laughs) Oh, and Film Freeway, let's plug those guys too. They always do a list every year of Oscar qualifying festivals. And that's great to know too, because right, if you're going to take a chance and reach reach for something that actually could have implications. Yeah, so choose your festivals wisely, and it gets really expensive really fast. And And plan on that beforehand, which I don't think people do. Yeah, budget for it. If your film is advocating for something, you know, try to find people who are like-minded that are also advocating for that, and they may be interested in giving you money. I do think we're, we're in an exciting point because... 
and this isn't applicable to shorts really because there isn't that much of a market, but you know, equity crowdfunding is a real thing. I think that regular yeah. crowdfunding is it's like something that you can do once every 10 years. <laughs> you know, I, it, for me, I, you know, I've crowdfunded one thing and 90% of the people that gave me money were my friends. Yeah, right? you can and only so, bug your friends so often. So often right? <laughs> and, I, and I think that from the other people that I've talked to that have crowdfunded things, they're in the same boat, right? But equity crowdfunding, if you're actually making a feature film and you can, you know, sell some some foreign territories, pre-sell some foreign territories, and you're willing to take on, you know, debt equity partners, you know, equity crowdsourcing is really an exciting new way to... to no, work. it's actually very cool. Yeah, that just... Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's like... Right, and this is one of the things, like, with, with that feature that I shot, I was also a producer on it. When we were going for money at the end of it, and we, we made that film, you know, 15 years ago for about 200000 Looking back at it after it was all said and done, we kind of realized that it would have been easier to raise more more money than the amount that we did because a lot of people at that budgetary level they just don't care people that can afford to lose that money also want to take bigger risks so that the payoff is bigger i, I, I you know yeah, you hear the idea sometimes right that if you're going to go and try and raise money to make a short film right just go all the way and try and raise the money mm-hmm. to make a feature because it's the yeah. same thing right yep. it's harder sometimes to raise a little bit of money but, agreed than yeah. a whole lot of money so yeah. i think that's a good point that a lot of people don't consider because yeah. it seems overwhelming i mean yeah. for regular people it, the concept and, and of it's, two hundred thousand dollars is a lot of money right but not for an investor right <laughs> not for anyone in film in, right? yeah or not for anybody in film not in, in equity buddy that works in you know for a fund yeah right? it's just not worth it to, absolutely to, to take the risk because it's a high risk but for such a little payoff it's not worth taking the risk so if you're asking for more money it's a little bit easier and also raising money for short films is really hard if you're gonna if you're thinking about raising debt because there's no market for them. I mean, there's a little bit of market. So in Europe, there's channels that will play shorts. There's short of, not short of the week, but shorts.tv. Short of the week doesn't pay you, but shorts TV, shorts.tv pays you. Um, and there's a couple other, like if you get in, if you qualify for the Oscars and you get in, even if you don't win, you'll probably get some level of distribution yeah. um, for doing things. But other than that, there just really isn't a market for shorts. So anybody that you're asking to raise debt from. It has to be a labor of love. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're never going to make back your investment. Yeah. You know, I don't want to say never, but highly, highly unlikely. Oh, yeah. Well, it sounds like a bus is about to drive through this building right now. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's just the joys of downtown LA. <laughs> so there's like someone walking in the middle of the street or something. <laughs> um, on that Actually, note. Actually, I just have that sound on my phone. <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about movies. Does that sound good to you, right. Oh, sure. Yeah, that part. Oh. Wow, I think someone's now getting murdered outside. Something. Think she got hit by the bus? But the police like this recording will make it available. You don't even need to speed us. It's really fine. <laughs> okay. Going that, now. That was uh, interesting. And it's very fitting, too, because the movie that actually we're going to talk about is, in fact, a movie about Los Angeles that yeah. everybody loves called L.A. Confidential. Mm. So I thought L.A. Confidential would be a good film to talk about when we're on the podcast about people moving to LA. And for me, like the theme of LA Confidential is sort of the difference between what's on the surface of Los Angeles and what's the CD. <laughs> you know, what, I what love the, it. What the truth of it is. I love it. Okay. Now, if you remember back like to the way that the film opens, right? It's Danny DeVito as what Sid Hutchins, I think is his character's yeah. name. And it's, he's doing, he's doing the voiceover. He's doing the, the, the monologue, the preamble, introducing everything. And it's this sort of travel narrative, right? Come to Los Angeles, yeah, yeah. the city of, you know, thousands yeah. of orange groves and everything. Right. And so he's this beautiful patina and then wham, bam, here's the underneath. Here's the CD underbelly. Here's the gritty part of hush, hush. Yeah. yeah. Then it, then it turns into this sort of, well, I don't, can we call it a neo-noir or should we just call it a, a film noir? 
I mean, it doesn't take place. I always the, thought of it as a noir, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm it's not. It's not made I think in people consider it neo noir because it's made currently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, it's totally like true. In many ways, the you know the themes are consistent yep. with noir, yep. like the Agreed. time period. Yeah, uh, I would consider it a modern day noir. I would, yeah, I think that's yeah. Good. yeah. And so, right when you're moving to LA, <laughs> you know you're gonna have to to look at some of that stuff, right? You know, here's this idealized. Whoa, I'm moving to Hollywood. I'm, I'm gonna, gonna live move, in Santa Monica. <laughs> Santa Monica, right? I'm gonna make movies. It's gonna be awesome, dude. I'm gonna surf every day, and and then you know you get here and you're living in. The valley somewhere, <laughs> and driving a VW with you know spare tire on it, and, and it takes you forty five minutes to get to the water. That's the right, yeah. <laughs> and that's when there's no, and that's not rush hour. You know? Yeah, yeah, it's right. Good traffic. So you know, I think in, in in one way, it's it's evocative, if not straight out indicative of <laughs> the LA noir. Very experience. much, I like right? that. I like that. That's you just that beyond just a film and a play to everyone's <laughs> life and that disappointment that they fear when they get here, and they're like, right. This is not what it was billed as. Well, it's well, weird too. Like, I haven't seen LA Confidential. It's probably been, I, it was on Netflix, I think, at one point, and I watched it maybe a year ago. Go watch it tonight. Yeah, it was a great <laughs> movie. And it's interesting because LA itself sticks out as almost like a character in the that film. Absolutely is. Yeah. Yep. You get the DVD, and uh, Chris Hansen, the director, ha- has his photo pitch that he used to Arnon Michelin who, uh, from Regency, who actually funded the film. Mm. And it's really great because he shows you the actual cards that he used in the pitch, talks about them, and he's really pitching Los Angeles and Los Angeles in that time period. And then the characters. Yeah. You know, he's the people that are in James Ellery's story, but then here's how we're going to show them on, on screen. I think what's great about LA Confidential is in many ways, it's true to the components of original 1940s noir film that we love, right? Yeah. And yeah, it has a the, lot of that. Conviction. It's one of the only films that I feel like in recent years to kind of hold true to the qualities of traditional noir without feeling like it's just kind of uh, evoking the qualities of noir for nostalgic sake. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. yeah. And, and I agree with you, but I, but there's certain points that I don't agree with you on. I mean, because it's not, for instance, lit like a film noir. Well, you know, there's never a, there's, the lighting is never <laughs> coming through the window and hitting you're the right. lines. You're right. You're right. Heavy shadows. There's never any crazy like backlights. There's no. So yeah, in one sense, true. from a thematic standpoint, it is very noir. I mean, there's a femme fatale. There's detectives mm. all over. You know, it has these tropes of the genre, but at the same time, it is a little bit updated, and it doesn't have to you know hit every single one of those noir points. There's no voiceover in it, for instance. Um, it's not black and white. Well, wait, uh, Danny DeVito. Yeah. Does he he has some Well he's it's not true voiceover. That... I mean it's a well, monologue that... from the from the magazine. That was okay. always a thing that ticked me off. Like <laughs> if I had one complaint about that, well two. One, they make City Hall be the police station. Yeah, right. That's, and I was like there's an error there. Yep. <laughs> and two, the fact that the, the monologue narrator dies halfway through the film. Well, well, right. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> spoilers. Yeah, we can edit that out, I guess. But I mean, and the other thing too is... The, oh, and there's two Australians that star in it. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. The movie has two, a, a surprising amount of action. That's full like, of action. Yeah, Absolutely. there's like some really cool action set pieces. Yeah. And uh, I mean, especially the, the final one. The is, final, is, yeah, yeah, the final quite one crazy. Great. This is the big shootout. But you know, I'm just going to ruin it for everybody who's listening. Well, and, and I think... The shootout well, at the Victory Hotel. <laughs> I think another interesting thing, too, is that whereas most noirs follow kind of our, our, our Marlowe, the one guy, yeah. this one actually kind of follows it's, a couple guys. three protagonists. And yeah. they convene. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting story trope 
that you've yeah, yeah. seen a lot of other noirs. Yeah. yeah, and and a lot of that comes from I haven't read it, but apparently um, the novel, the James Elroy novel that it's based on, is really really thick and dense and has multiple, even more protagonists, and it follows multiple characters for for a long period of time. And they really did a lot of took a lot of creative liberty in distilling it down to something that would work in a film in, okay. in two hours. That's cool. I should read. Um, it. Yeah, I've, I've been. It's been on my shelf for years, and the reason why I haven't read it because every time I look at it, it's it's a commitment. You know, yeah. I mean, when you're in, you're in. Well, and also if you love the movie, I mean, sometimes a movie I really it's, love, I'm always hesitant to, it's hard to read the book and in, see. Yeah. The other thing too with the movie that's worth noting is it, it's a movie about LA, but you have you know filmmaking. It, it is a movie packed with stars. It is. Well, I mean, well, keep in mind Russell Crowe and Guy Pearce were not stars when the film was not made. Not at the time. And Russell Kevin Crow, Spacey, he was around in the '80s, wasn't he? No, he was he was an Australian actor oh, okay. and, and uh, you know had done some stuff in Australia. And this is one of the first films, if okay, not the okay. first film that he did in the United States. Should we talk about Kevin Spacey? Well, he's part of the movie. He's I mean, part of the movie, yeah, sure. and, and I mean, well, it's I know this is your opinion. It's worth it's like, watching it because right. it's one of his better performances, I think. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, the stigma that's attached to him almost makes him a better character. You know, we we bring things. To films that we watch based on what we know about the people who make them or who are right, in them. Right, right. And that actually, it's very ironic. It, it is ironic. 20 years yeah. later, finding yeah, yeah. out all this, we're like, hmm, okay. But the yeah, point I mean, is, everything that we've heard recently, watching it through that lens in, in the uh, you know in the present enhances the character to some extent. To some extent, right, yeah. In, in a strange, sad way. Yeah. Which, I mean, I don't think anyone planned on, but I guess that was just a consequence of right, the right. present. Um, um, and I bet the same thing would be true with a lot of his, his films. You know, American Beauty, for sure. I think that watching that again now, I haven't creepy. seen it in a number of years, but I, I don't it think... It creepy a little bit. You know? it, it was, yeah. right. Yeah. And does what we know now, how does it affect our viewing of that film, you know, through our contemporary lens? The director of L.A. Confidential. Curtis Hansen. Also directed... Eight Mile. Eight Mile. Uh-huh. Yeah. Did you... Had you seen L.A. Confidential when you started working on oh, it? Oh, yeah. In, in, um, Absolutely, yeah. We never talked about it. Is, is being a fan of someone's work... Right, and then getting the opportunity to work with the artist on another project. I love yeah, this. it's now more it's more you. rewarding. This is cool, kind of a thing, and it also it wears off really fast. <laughs> you know, because I mean, it happens all the time. Yeah. Now you know. Well, yeah. for you, but yeah. what I'm saying is, I'm sure there's a lot of people who are their bucket list is I would love to make a movie with this person that made my favorite movie. You know, this movie that I like, whatever. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not much of a star fucker. And I never have. <laughs> right. And so, and, and it's also when you meet people in that capacity, there's always an inadequacy in the structure of power. Right. And so it's, it never feels like when you're first meeting somebody in a work environment. Well, first of all, there's the professionalism, right? Okay. This so, is the most pragmatic common sense answer I've ever heard. <laughs> you're just supposed to be like, no, dude, it's awesome. It's so much fun to finally get to see people whose art you admire. Okay. Continue with your, your, well, your well, real, you're, you're there to do a common job. Politic advice right. Here. And when you're, when you're, when you're a fanboy, that changes the professional relationship. That's right. Right. I mean, in some sets, or even like, don't look the actors in the eye. You know, I mean, you can get on sets depending on, on how the director or how the actors want to structure their experience while they're there. And they have more power than you. I mean, unless you're directing. And so, I mean, the ADs in, in all production will tell you, they're like, okay, this is a very serious scene. The actors don't want any eye contact made with them while they're performing the scene. Yeah. You know, and you have to kind of look away even though you're there to do a job. You can't just be standing there. And so that, that same thing... I, I feel is applicable whenever you're in a professional environment with somebody, whether you admire them or not, you know, don't go up to them and you can say, Hey man, nice to meet you. Loved your work on this, this, or that, but you don't really want to engage them deeply in a conversation about that 
or like ask for their autograph because or something like that. Boys yeah. get because annoying. They, they get annoying. They get it all the time, and you're you're both there for a professional reason. Yeah. Right. That's fair. So there's a place and time for that, and there's it's not. A, and it's not. On it's called Comic Con, not. On yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. That's fair. That's good advice. Okay. I take back the harsh comments about the right <laughs> dryness of your answer. <laughs> I'm just trying to be honest. For no, all I, I appreciate it. Cinema land takeaways. When you meet your star, don't go up to them and harass them about the fact that you love their work. <laughs> Two, watch LA Confidential because whether you like noirs or not, it's just a great freaking movie. Yeah, it really is. I actually to look up the director found it on Rotten Tomatoes and it has like a 99. percent It's great. It yeah. deserves it. A, well, I was like, dang, you don't see movies that high. LA Confidential, I think, will hold up forever because it was made out of its time, right? I mean, I think the story takes place in the early 50s, like 53 or 52, yeah. something like that. Yeah. Uh, but it was made in the late 90s, and so it does. It never feels dated, right? Because no, it isn't no. of its time. It's, it's of Which I think time. why, unlike most uh, neo-noirs, it actually was successful, and it's had a long shelf life, which kind of is, you know... Oh man, now I want to murder for the most part. Yeah, was yeah. it the Academy Awards that year? It was nominated for Best Picture. And it was like one of the best, like best picture groups. I forget what it lost to though. Did it I don't remember. I think it, I think it, I know it came out in the same year as um Boogie Nights. But I don't think Boogie Nights won for that year either. Should I look it up? Yeah, look it up. Alright. Just killing time here on the podcast. Well, now we gotta yeah. know. But we can just edit it so it sounds like we have the answers. Yeah. What year would you say it was? 90? 98? 97, 98? Uh-huh, yeah, 97, 98. Let's see. Best Picture nominees. As Good As It Gets, The Full oh. Monty, Good Will Hunting, L.A. Confidential, and Titanic. Oh, oh yeah. Titanic. So, what a year. So if Titanic, Titanic wasn't, wasn't there, the next, I really next think they'd probably could have had that all wrapped up. Huh? All, like, as all, Good As It Gets and, uh, and Good Will Hunting? I don't know. That's, I don't know. Shoot, all these movies as Oscar nominees hold up like they still get watched you know yeah, yeah. that's awesome that's a good year for film titanic though man the, that thing won everything yep yeah how could it well screenplay good behind one screenplay there yeah yep. all right well i do well we want to throw it over to you real quick if you have any uh final words or anything that you who, who do you have to plug here so that you know you don't get like maimed on your next set anyone you gotta plug uh Steven Spielberg because it never hurts. You know, <laughs> Steven, thanks for the great work. We love your movies. <laughs> Maybe we should just close with talking about uh, LA Confidential again. Okay. Um, so Kim Basinger plays a prostitute who comes to Los Angeles with the dreams of being an actress, and it doesn't work out for her, right? Okay. But Pierce Patchett, the pimp, drug dealing, freeway making millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it still allow, allow, allows her to act a little bit, and she has some level of satisfaction with that, right? Yeah. So if you guys are coming out to L.A. and you have this dream of how you think it's going to go, I can virtually guarantee it's not going to go the way you think it's going to go, but it's going to go in a different way. And be open-minded enough, maybe not as open-minded as selling out a prostitute, but open-minded <laughs> enough <laughs> that uh, you're going to be open to getting the most out of your Los Angeles experience that you can. Nick, people with questions want to connect with you. Are you on social media at all? Are there ways they can find you? Obviously, you dropped your website before, but... Yeah, just go to my website. You can find it that way. It's distortionfield.tv. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure. Really appreciate it. You had great stuff to say, and we're looking forward to more awesome projects. Sounds good. Um, definitely check out Nick's website. He's done some amazing projects, and you can also find him on eBay.
IMDb to see more of the extent of his actual. That's true. Yeah. Let us know if you have any questions or thoughts or right. yeah, you can connect with me at Big Kid D Man, and I'm at Indycal Five. Where... So thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. Thank you, Nick, again, and uh, we'll be back for another episode. See you next time.